We are back in the Gospel of Luke, uh, this sermon series through uh, Luke as a master class, a master class in living from the master. So this morning we pick up in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Luke 16, beginning at verse 19. Listen then for the voice of God. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was, torn, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to Dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, Between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The word of the Lord. Seriously? (laughs) In adult education last week, I confessed that I love Jesus and the words of Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus and the words of Jesus. I'd rather preach on a gospel text than take up Paul or a psalm or a prophet. And then Jesus says this. These are vivid, vile images Slobbering hound dogs lick the scabby sores of a poor man waiting for scraps to fall from a table. A rich man trapped in blistering heat 
thirsts for a drop of water to cool his cracked lips. These are not the folksy images of a lost coin or a stray lamb. These are hard and harsh and not for children or the faint of heart. There's something terrible and terrifying here. So what are we to make of these words of Jesus? How are we to read them or live with them? What kind of wiggle room can we find? What are we to make of these words of Jesus? The, the parable can be broken down into three acts. The first act contrasts the wealthy man and Lazarus. The second act describes the reversal of their conditions. And the third act depicts the rich man requesting a sign so that others can avoid his torment. Three acts. However, what the parable lacks is the sort of information that one needs to offer a judicious and reasoned interpretation. For example, it doesn't say if Lazarus was deserving of mercy or looking for a handout. It doesn't let us know if he was an addict or mentally ill or just a good guy stuck in a bad economy. We don't know if he cried out or if he just lay there mute, eyes down, lost in the landscape. We, we don't know if Lazarus was the working poor or the migrant poor or the shiftless poor or the beautiful poor. All the parable offers is that he lay at the gate, sick and hungry. And that, Jesus seems to say, is all that we need to know to predict the coming reversal. But of course, we don't know much about the rich man either. We don't know if he disdained Lazarus or if he tried to get him moved from the entrance to his gated community or if he barely paid any attention. We don't know if he muttered, you, you, you can't help these people. They don't take responsibility and, and certainly don't give them money. It'll, get, it'll just go to drugs. All we know is that Lazarus dressed well, ate well, and that... Jesus seems to say, is all we need to know to predict the coming reversal. 
Clarence Jordan, um, Southerner, wrote a version of the Gospels called the Cotton Patch Gospels, a sort of paraphrase of the Gospels. And he imagines the rich man calling out, Oh, Father Abraham, send me my water boy. Water boy, quick, I'm just about to perish down here. My wife hates it when I do accents. <laughs> I had no plans to do an accent. None. It just came out. Father Abraham, send me my water boy. Water boy, quick, I'm just about to perish. You, once you start it, you can't stop it. I need a drink of water. That rich old guy had hollered for his water boy. Boy, bring me water. Boy, bring me this. Boy, bring me that. Get away, boy. Come here, boy. That reading reveals one more thing about the rich man. Even in hell, he doesn't get it. It's not just that the rich man didn't have compassion on Lazarus. It's not just that he didn't listen to Moses and the prophets. But even when he's up to his neck in flames, he still sees the poor man as his servant. There's no indication of repentance or a softening of his heart. He continues to locate himself in the geography of place and power, makers and takers. So he asks for mercy, not forgiveness. He asks for water, not justice. To his credit, the rich man worries about his family. He believes his brothers need to know about this state of affairs and suggests that if someone come back from the dead to report, Father Abraham bluntly dismisses such a hope. If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. So what are we to make of these words of Jesus? What are we to do with this parable? What do we do in this master class? You know, maybe each of us have our own experience with Lazarus at the gate. They stand at busy intersections holding cardboard signs. We see the same men and same women in all seasons working the same corners. And they drum on buckets and sell flowers. I avert my gaze. I look down. I look busy. 
I look away. And I have no idea how to respond in meaningful, faithful ways. Supporting the women and children's shelter or the daily lunches in Roseland seems far removed from that human moment. Immigration policies, welfare reform, affordable health care, and a living wage all seem disconnected from those moments of encounter. So what are we to make of the words of Jesus? Look, it, it's hard to read our text from one cultural context to the next. You can't just read that and make that fit here. Historians and archaeologists note that there was often a bench set outside of homes where the poor would wait for assistance. It was a form or a pattern of welfare. Now Jesus says that this particular man, and this is a literal quote from the Greek, the rich man, made good cheer every day. Some translations have it that he feasted every day meaning that the rich man repeatedly ignored the prescribed practices of compassion, the man on the bench. And all Lazarus wanted was leftovers. You're still with me? It's also probably worth mentioning that this is the only Time Jesus names a character in a parable. And Lazarus literally means God helps or the one whom God helps. As one scholar puts it, Jesus does not let this opportunity to speak a word of comfort slip by. By giving the poor suffering man the name God helps, Jesus adds even more hope to the image of him being comforted at a place of honor in heaven. The story may be for the transformation of another, the rich man, but Jesus subtly communicates to those in need. God sees you too. God helps those in need. Does that help? What if we thought about it this way? Tucked away in this terrible parable, there's a colorful Greek phrase in Greek, mega chasma, a huge chasm, a grand canyon, a giant gap. It reads as the fixed distance between Lazarus and Hades. Tradition places it as the chasm between heaven and hell. But what if we read it as the gap between the rich man and the poor man? 
the gap between the satisfied and the hungry, the gap between the sober and the strung out, the gap between the secure and the tossed aside. In part, that megachasma keeps us from seeing the poor as our sisters and brothers, if we see them at all. Because they easily become the objects of mission or the recipients of sympathy. They easily become the other. They easily become them, not, not us. But part of what this parable points to is our commonality, our shared reality, our stitched togetherness the way in which our futures are all intertwined. Aubrey West puts it this way. The parable is not primarily a lesson in what happens to people after they die, though it contains an inescapable element of condition of caution regarding ways that, many, that money obscures our vision of both this world and, the, and what God gives us in life. Okay, so I need glasses. <laughs> the parable is not primarily a lesson in what happens to people after they die, though it contains an inescapable element of caution regarding ways that money obscures our vision of both this world and the God who gives us life. But the parable illustrates a reality made possible by the reign of God. The parable suggests that Jesus, the one raised from the dead, proclaims a worldview not bound by cultural assumptions of value or worth. Those who embrace this good news are empowered for repentance. That is a change of heart and mind. A change particularly regarding their vision of what? And who matters? About a decade ago, Sandy and I were in London. <laughs> I didn't do English accents when I was there either. <laughs> Sandy and I were in London. We were looking for my roots and searching for my people. We loved it. The public train system, the tube, was remarkable and easy to navigate. And every time you got on or off, a gentle voice reminded you to mind the gap. Mind the gap. The distance between the platform and the train. Can we read this parable as a way to mind the gap? Can we hear in the words of Jesus a change of heart and mind and practice regarding the chasm between rich and poor? I should give you a bunch of practical things to do here, but I want to go back to the text. 
There's a small word in the second verse of our text that's complicated to translate. It reads that Lazarus was laid at the gate. The verb is passive. So either someone carried him and set him there, or it was some divine action. God laid him there. But the verb also is the same word used for throwing out worthless salt in Luke 14.35 or for throwing something into the fire in Luke 3.9. The poor man was thrown away. The poor man was a throwaway. So look, I don't have easy answers. Practical things to do. But I do think this parable invites repentance. A change of heart and mind. It means relationships. Not out of curiosity or convenience or for, for their conversion, but it means relationships of mutuality, vulnerability, and the recognition of a shared future. It means a commitment to relationships that stretch us and break us because by grace we come to see that no one is a throwaway. That's a really difficult term it's a really difficult turn because it's easy to throw money at a ministry. It's harder to know how to faithfully change practices and patterns. Even when the Gospels are loaded with warnings. Listen to Jesus earlier in Luke. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. And you yourselves thrown out. Same word. Then people will come from east and west, from north and south, and will eat in the kingdom of God. Indeed, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Dear friends, according to Jesus, there's a coming reversal. And according to Jesus, it seems fitting and faithful that we mind the gap, that we see one another, rich and poor, as inextricably stitched together in the same fabric. There's no one who's thrown away. There's no one who's thrown away. For the Gospels bear witness to a God who poured himself out in Christ for both the thrown away beggar and the self-absorbed rich man. May we live in such a manner that we bear witness to the one who bridged the MAGA chasma and inaugurated a kingdom where the tables are turned. Amen.